This is a production of KMmedia.pro. Welcome back to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So come on over into our world. I know you'll like it, because on today's show... Today, we're going to talk about something that's a little uh, offbeat for Positive Talk Radio, but it actually is a happening now kind of current thing that that uh, I think a lot of people will benefit from listening to this entire uh, show. So I hope that you'll do that, Ben. First, I got to welcome... A, a stellar athlete in his own right. Nathan, how are you? Doing well, Kevin. Multi-sport athlete at your service. I tell you. Now, now some you... of those, they might question whether they're sports or not, but <laughs> they are have been broadcasted on ESPN, so I think that qualifies them enough to be a sport. Exactly. Now, you're a pool player. Yep. You're a, a frisbee golfer. Disc golfer. Yes. <laughs> disc golfer, I guess, is a little bit correct. different than a frisbee is a disc. Is it really? It is. They have different uh aerodynamics and molds and how they're made. So it's not like the typical catch throwing uh frisbee you have. It's a lot more like flat or rounded and different build to it. But same thing though, you know, you throw it, it spins, it goes far. And you also have Maybe one of the biggest strike zones in America yeah. when, you play, when you play baseball. Yep. Which, ironically, I had a very high walk rate. I think people are not used to throwing maybe a high strike, or maybe they just like, ah, oh, this is an easy strike zone. I got it, no problem. And it gets to their head, and they throw a ball. Speaking of getting into your head, did you ever uh, know about sports psychology and taking care of of the mental side of the game? Did you ever participate in that? Of course. You know, half of baseball is mental and half of it is physical. Exactly. That's why and, they're um, always getting these stats and figuring out how do we work around this person's, you know, mentality? How do we figure it, them out? Exactly. And baseball is maybe one of the hardest games in the world to play because it's half you're right most of it's in your head mm -hmm. if you don't believe you can do something guess what you can't <laughs> and think about how superstitious baseball is too i was just telling some people at the aqua Sox game last night we actually walked out onto the field to do the national anthem with all our dogs who was bark at the park night and i said you know when you're walking out onto the field make sure you don't step on that line because that's bad that is, luck. That is superstition. But there are, if you watch a major league baseball game and you watch the pitcher come from the, the pitcher's mound, most of the time, uh, Felix Hernandez was great at this. He would skip over the line. Yep. Because it was bad luck. It is bad luck. So we have got a great show for you today, and we're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about the transition that kids make from a kid's sport to then going to college. And we've got an expert in the field to talk to us about that. His name is Michael Huber, or as um, Nathan would say, Hubert. I might have um, watched a little bit too much Stephen Colbert in my days. <laughs> I got <that> bit. <laughs> Mike, how are you? Good, Kevin, Nathan. How are you both? Excellent. We we are great, and uh, I, I got to ask you, because when I was in sports way back in the 70s, 
there was no such thing as sports psychology or understanding how the mental side of the game affected everything else. But that's is so. Is it newer than that? Is is it not fifty years old? It's 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 something that has been blossoming of late. It's evolved over time. I would say that it, it's the roots go back probably a hundred years, but the truth of the matter is, is that the, the mainstream application of sports psychology is probably within the last 30 years or so. So I would say in individual Olympic sports is sort of where it started. Um, you know, the individual swimming, diving, uh, gymnastics, golf, those kinds of things. Uh, but it's only really been since probably the early nineties where it's kind of taken on the mainstream here in America, uh, particularly in baseball, major league baseball is sort of the pioneer, uh, in terms of professional sport, uh, accessing sports psychology. And now everybody is into it. It seems like, um, it major league baseball players have got their own mental performance coach in a lot of cases and in football as well. Um, and, and because they recognize how important a part of your performance, the mental side is. Let's talk about you a little bit. Now, how long have you been doing this? Uh, I've been doing it for about six years. Uh, so my second, second career, second, uh, chance at, uh, at getting it right in my professional life. And I, I love every minute of it. It was, uh, it's something that really means a lot to me, helping young people navigate some of the challenges that they have mentally and emotionally. It's sort of, um, you know, I have had my own uh, challenges and struggles along the way. So uh, I really felt like, you know, being someone that other people could turn to for those, that kind of help was, was something I really wanted to do. And you are helping a lot of kids because your, your focus is uh, the stellar uh, teenage athlete as they make that transition from high school to college or high school to the draft and getting drafted by the pros of that sort of thing. Am I correct in that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's something I focus on in my work and it's something I'm just truly curious about because I think one of the things I noticed working in the high school environment for a couple of years is that, you know, usually if you're a really stellar high school athlete, that's based upon physical ability, right? You're sort of God-given talent, right? Most of the kids who excel are the ones that are the biggest, fastest, strongest. They just have the natural ability. And then they, they go on to move to the next level, whether it's college or even professional in some cases, and everybody has that natural ability, right? You're sort of selected into this pool where everybody's just like you. And it can be the first time in your life where you really have to deal with adversity and competition and comparing yourself to other people and dealing with failure. And, you know, I guess I'm curious about how young people who make that transition do it and what are the skills and the tools that they need to do it successfully. You know, when you look at it, when a, you have a really good athlete, they're really good at in little league or peewee football or whatever it is. And they continue to be the best in the in the sport that they're in and it must be a shock to them to go to a college where there are i don't know the typical football team who has what 100 kids that are out there and you're now being competing with guys of equal and or better ability than you have 
absolutely. Yeah, it, it has to be a shock for a lot of them, right? And I listen, I think it's a spectrum, right? I'm sure, you know, there there are infinite kids who have made that jump and some naturally have that mental and emotional ability to manage that, right? They have natural resilience. They have natural, uh, a naturally op- optimistic outlook. They have a growth mindset, whether it's sort of a personality trait that they're born with, or they develop, m- develop it based on the parenting and coaching that they receive, right? But I would say that if I had to guess, that's the minority, right? The majority of these athletes are the ones that have been athletically superior. They've always been pat on the back, right? Patted on the back. You're the best. They're rewarded for outcomes, results, for for performance. And, you know, when they fail, it's it's infrequent, but they also don't really know how to deal with it. Or maybe they're even, um, you know, maybe they're even sort of uh, chastised for it, right? But it's very infrequent. Now you get to this level where you're expected to work even harder and you're one of many and you have to establish all these new relationships and navigate a new environment. And you know, you don't know what to expect in most cases. So if your personality or your uh, skill set emotionally and mentally is not there, it's going to be a really challenging transition, like any other change in our lives. Absolutely. But these are changes that happen when you're 17 or 18 years old Mm -hmm. and you're just, you're baby barely out of diapers. And from my point of view at that point. It's a really good point. Um, So I I think one of the things that I talk to athletes a lot about is the fact that, especially for male athletes, and this is just biologically, their brains aren't fully developed until their mid-20s, right? So what I mean by that is it's really their executive functioning, their decision-making, right? Like their ability to sort of process information and not be overly reactive or emotional, Um, and so that puts them at a a deficit right now. They're expected to come in and do what amounts to a job, right. On a daily basis, show up with your lunch pail, practice every day, 20 hours a week, plus weight room, plus academics. Um, you know, and they've got all these competing demands like, Hey, I'm on my own for the first time. I get to go socialize and party, um, all these different things. And their brains aren't really developed to the point yet where, you know, they can necessarily handle it in the right way. So I think for me, the way I look at it is, is that the transition is going to come. If you're going to play at that level, you're either going to figure it out when you get there, or you should be be preparing for it before you get there. And that's kind of where I come from is, hey, let's prepare for this proactively so that you don't have to find out the hard way, how hard it's going to be when you actually get there. Foreknowledge is forearmed, I think, is if you if you're aware of how tough it's going to be. But when you're that age and you've got, you know, I paint a picture for you. You're you're 18 years old and a guy like, uh, well, well, when Pete Carroll was at USC and a guy and a coach walks into your house and he's calling your parents, sir and ma'am. And and he's trying to make a really good impression on you. And he makes you feel like you're, you're, you know, on cloud nine and stuff. That's got to be a real mental thing for the kids because they got people coming into their house who they have, they've been looking at their entire lives as held on a, a pedestal. And they're, they're coming in to talk to me. What's that do to a kid's head? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's good for, it, it, it feeds the ego. 
right? And and it actually it's a really good example in the sense that when they're being recruited uh, or they're being scouted, right? Like you're you're being sold on this sort of vision for the future. We really want you. This is how you fit in. We want you to commit to our school. But in some things that I listen and, and watch myself, I've heard the phrase de-recruiting. Coaches have to de-recruit players once they get them on campus or get them into their program because the kid comes in thinking like, I'm so special. The coach has been telling me how much of a role I'm going to play when I walk in the door, but that's not really necessarily the truth. So they have to go to start back from square one to say like, Hey, I got you here now. Now you have to shift your mentality to you've got to earn it. Right. And that's really hard. I think it kind of goes back to the developmental side of things, right? Like you've already sort of convinced yourself that like, this has been promised to me and now things don't pan out the way you want them to when you arrive on campus. That's very confusing for any person, let alone somebody who's 17, 18, 19 years old. Oh yeah. And then do you work with a lot of baseball players? Yeah. Baseball and, and not, and not uh, intentionally so, but I would say just coincidentally, I'd say it's probably like three quarters to 80% of my client base is baseball. Do you recommend, or do you kind of do an aptitude test with each kid to see whether or not they are emotionally ready and they may be physically ready, but are they emotionally ready to go to the minor leagues and get drafted? Or do you recommend in some cases that they go to college? No, I, I don't, I don't get into that. And, and frankly, I think that that's something that I don't even know that colleges are doing necessarily. I think it happens at the professional level when teams are scouting, every team has sort of a, a different level of psychological assessment that they do. Some teams are philosophically highly into it to sort of assess, like, is this person ready to sort of fit into our organization? Some don't, some are still only assessing or primarily assessing on physical trait and physical ability. So it varies. I, I for me in my practice, I really am trying to prepare those kids to sort of, manage themselves. Right. And it's not even so much managing the environment because one of the things that I talk to kids about a lot, regardless of whether they're 12 or 22 is what can you control and what can't you control? And even if you walk into the best situation, there are just going to be some things that you're not ready to deal with or that you are not going to be able to change. Right. Do you have the, the aptitude yourself to settle yourself down to shift your perspective, to, to be able to get yourself to be present, right. To quell your anxiety or your stress, or maybe even some of the feelings of, you know, sort of depression or even hopelessness sometimes that like, Hey, I'm doing all this work and I'm not getting the reward that I want. How can I find my way out of this so that I could get back to, Hey, I need to focus on what I can do right now. For me, it's more about the person than it is the transition or where they're going or what they're capable of is, Hey, like, I want to make sure that you're okay. And that translates into the environment, but I'm not sort of assessing them and their aptitude. I'm really trying to meet them where they're at and give them more, give them more skills, move them forward. I'm of the opinion now that I've been through, you know, that period of kids um, and, and growing up and stuff, I'm of the opinion 
that every kid that's graduating, male and female, that's graduating from high school needs a coach other than their parents to set them straight about what is liable to happen to them and also to talk to the parents about what's good for the kid based upon your conversations with them. I'll give you an example. I have a good friend that his uh, youngest son wanted to go straight from college to uh, or straight from uh, high school to college. And so he picked uh, Arizona State University. <laughs> the reason he picked Arizona, you're laughing. The reason he picked Arizona State is because it's known as a party school. And he wanted to go there because he wanted to go party. And uh, um, he lasted a whole quarter. And, and he flunked out, and it, his dad spent a chunk of money getting that done, but he didn't have the aptitude and nobody was there to help him through it. That do you find that there's a lot of kids in that boat? Absolutely. Right. I, 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 it's, I, I think it's just something that's as old as time. Right. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact it has to do with, as you alluded to the parent child dynamic, the relationship, right. As a parent myself, I know that there are just some things I'll say to my children and they're not going to listen because I'm dad. Right. And so I think there is a need for an objective voice in that, in that conversation of saying, Hey, like, I'm not telling you to not do this, but I'm telling you that if you do that, there's going to be a consequence, right? If you do it, it doesn't affect me. I'm not your parent. I'm your coach, but I really want the best for you. Whereas if a parent tells them not to do something, it may be coming from the same exact place, but they're thinking the parents trying to hold them back. Right. So I think having an objective voice, I think there's probably more room in our profession, right. In what I do for parent coaching, right. Like just based on my experiences working with the athletes and their families, I think there's just some areas or elements or aspects where the parents have blind spots and they need an objective voice to come in and say, Hey, you're doing it this way and you're doing your best, but you could do it better if you did it this way. Right. And I think there are certain, there are definitely some tactics that parents can use to put themselves in a better position or increase the chances that their kids are actually going to listen to them. You know, and there's also that other thing that, that gets in the way of, especially a great athlete going from high school to uh, college. And that is the parents have dollar signs sometimes in their heads. And they're thinking that this child is going to be a prodigy and he's going to make millions of dollars. And because I'm his, his dear old dad, he's going to buy me a house or, you know, I don't know. Uh, but that, that happens too, doesn't it? I think it does, but I, I would say, and this is only based on my experience. I think it's that, that scenario specifically is pretty rare. I think what's more common is that there is this sort of implicit understanding with all parties, the parents and the kids that parents are spending an exorbitant amount of money in youth and adolescent sport between league fees, travel, private coaching, et cetera, et cetera, everybody knows it's implicit that there's a lot of money being spent. And I don't think the parents expect the kids to go pro and make millions. I think there is definitely an expectation and sometimes an explicit one that the kid goes to college to play the sport, to recoup some of that investment, right? College is going to cost me 300,000 over four years. Like 
I've spent X on your sports for the last 15 years. Like, okay, go get me some of that back. They might not use that language or say it that way, but I think everybody sort of knows that that's the elephant in the room a lot of times. And that frankly is the cause. I think at least this is just my observation. I think it's a, it's a cause of the fact that I have so many kids come to me saying, Hey, I feel overwhelmed. I feel under pressure. I don't want to make, make a mistake. I don't want to fail. And they don't say it's because their parents are telling them, Hey, you have to go get a scholarship and you're screwing up. But I think subconsciously that's in the back of their minds. Like they don't want to let mom and dad down for all that they've done. And so it just heaps a bit of extra pressure that they don't really know how to make sense of it. And must be just an enormous amount of pressure when you've been the best kid on your little league team and your pony league team and your high school team. And now you're going to go to college or you're going to get, go to the pros and all these people are dependent upon you and your skill mm-hmm. to get to the next level. That's, that must be really mentally a challenge for a lot of kids. Absolutely. And, and, and it is because you're still a kid, right? Like exactly. you want, right. You want to be a kid like, listen, and don't get me wrong. Right. I think we live in a world now where teenagers who are invested in their sport, are, I, I think they're working harder than ever. In fact, they're probably working hard harder than they need to, or they're, they're growing up too fast, I guess is the best way to put it. Meaning that they're spending so much time and energy into their sport. Like they accept it and they want it, but they don't even realize that they're giving up all these other elements of childhood that used to be normal, like taking a summer off or playing another sport or playing two other sports. Um, all these things that, you know, you and I did now kids are moving into one sport only all year round. Um, I've got to work with a private coach. All these things that weren't normal 20, 30, 40 years ago are now normalized. And it's almost like they don't know. And so like the pressure is there, but it's, it's become normalized, which it really is a shame because it's becoming a bit of a pressure cooker, you know? And I think a lot of kids, some kids handle it, but I think a lot of kids don't really know how to navigate it. It makes it really, I, I can only imagine how tough it is. I mean, and I know I grew up in a time when um, the, the coaching was a little bit different and, and uh, even parenting was a little bit different. And, and I, I know a guy that was, um, I think I told you in, in the last time we talked, he was r- rarefied air. The first time I saw him pitch, I didn't know the ball could go that fast. Uh, and he's, you know, when you, when you're uh, standing next to somebody who can pitch and the, the, the ball makes that little S sound like, it's like yeah. it's sizzling along the way. It's like, Holy crap, this guy, this guy. And I, he, he played the same, uh, um, um, league that I did over in Kirkland and which, and he did remarkably well. And then he, every, it was really fun because, um, I got to see a little bit of the celebrity side because he would, we would be playing a game and there'd be a bunch of guys in overcoats with a hat who would, with a clipboard that would be in the uh, stands and they would be taking notes and stuff. I talked personally talked to a guy from Notre Dame, from, um, the Red Sox, from the Yankees, from a bunch of different teams. And they were all here to see him. They didn't care about us. They just wanted to see him. And uh, so he was the first round, first pick of the first round of the major league draft in uh, 1975. And he never played major league baseball. Wow. So it can happen. Yeah. 
So they got to be prepared for life, not just to play a sport. Well, I think that you raise a really important point, right? Like the number of athletes that survive that process is very, very small, right? So retirement is coming for all of us. It's coming for us at the end of high school, at the end of college. Maybe we have a professional career, but we never make it to the majors or you get to the majors and you, you get a sniff and then you're out, right? It's coming for every, everybody. And it's probably coming before the age of 30, right? So like, what's next? Like, are you ready to deal with life without the sport you've been playing for 15, 20, 30 years? Like, can your identity sustain it? Right. And that's a big part of what I talk to about with young athletes about is, is that a, like I said before, you, you can and control can and can't control only certain things, which includes selection, meaning the person you reference, right? Not everyone's going to make it, whether or not they deserve to make it, it's a whole other story, but it's out of your control at a certain point, right? How do you deal with that? But the other piece is identity. So much of our identity as athletes is, I mean, as people is wrapped up in being an athlete that when we don't have it anymore, we're lost. And that leads to other problems down the road in life, you know, like depression, anxiety, who am I, what am I going to do with my life? All those things, right? If you can keep that perspective and maintain other healthy elements of your identity as an athlete, as you're going through it, the ability to sustain and survive it when it comes to an end is going to be much, the chances are going to be much greater. And it, and you're right. It happens to all of us yep. at one point or another. I couldn't hit a curveball in high school, so that was the end of that and and stuff. But it, but it does happen to us. By the way, we're talking with Michael V. Huber and go to his website, which is by the way michaelvhuber.com, and find out all about him. He works with kids. He's got a podcast that we're going to talk about in the second half a little bit. It's called the Freshman Foundation. And uh, he's 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 a he's really is interested in your child's welfare, in getting the best that you that he can, and not just for a couple of days or a week or a month. It's how can how can we help our children get through all of the stuff that gets thrown at them, the social media and all that stuff, and come out normal kids so that they can have a, a good life, even if they can't be, even if they can't hit a curveball. And they can't play anymore. So, and Michael he helps people with that. So, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the mental performance side because that is become a huge thing in the industry. So, you're listening to Positive Talk Radio, and we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, PTR loyal listener. First, thanks for being in my dream. And second, I have a new concept in business to share with you. It's called socialpreneurship. So what's that? Well, it's the idea that any company designates all profits beyond expenses to be awarded to a local or international charity or project which is working to achieve good in the world. KM Media is such a company. We believe that it's important for us to give back whenever possible and to make great things happen. So I hope you'll join us in creating this new business model that will positively impact all of us. In the next few weeks, we will lay out the plan and begin our fundraising efforts. So stay tuned for more details right here on Positive Talk Radio. When you want to say more than words communicate, you can 
with flowers. Your custom boutique floral studio in Bothell, Washington is anaturaldesign.com, connecting you to nature through the language of flowers. Where your people are is where our flowers are beautiful. Your success is our goal. anaturaldesign.com at your fingertips today. Hey, thanks for listening to Positive Talk Radio. Did you know that we're also a media production company? Well, surprise, we are. We can create all kinds of audio, video products to fill any need. Please visit kmmedia.pro backslash our dash store for a complete list of products and services. In addition, do you need a great voice to add to your own website or any other project? I know that we can add depth and quality to your work. I've been told more times than I can count by many professionals in the business that my voice adds to the quality of the presentation. So let me create something for you. Please contact me at Kevin at KMmedia.pro and let's create something great. And welcome back to Positive Talk Radio. It's Friday. It's Friday at noon. We're all here having a good time. Although in some places it's already been noon and it's come and gone. I think Mike is in one of those places. Uh, you're back east, aren't you, Mike? I am. It's uh, approximately 3.30 Eastern time. Oh, very good. How was your afternoon? I haven't had mine yet. Uh, it's been pretty busy, actually. It's a it's a beautiful day here in New Jersey. Uh, I wish I was out there to enjoy it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, duty calls. I know you're probably sitting in your little studio like I'm sitting in my little studio doing doing this and you're working all day pretty much. Yeah. Then tell me about your podcast. How long you've been doing it and uh, and what's it all about? Sure. The podcast, I started it. it the first episode was published in uh, February of 2021. So the idea for the Freshman Foundation came to be during covid as many podcasts did and people had a lot of time on their hands and uh i was literally just starting out with my practice uh private practice at that point i had a, a time on my hands it was you know it was a kind of disadvantageous to start during covid in the sense that you know people were home there wasn't much going on but it did give me a chance to sort of think a little bit more about how i wanted things to be and the podcast came out of that and it really was born out of the idea of hey, I want to explore this transition from high school to college athletics. And so I started to round up some people that I knew that would be really good guests. And I started interviewing them in 2020. So my probably my first 10 to 12 guests were interviewed in 2020. Those all got packaged up. I had an agency at the time, started me out, uh, put it all together. And I launched the podcast in early 2021. Since then, I've kind of taken it back to myself. I do all the work in-house, and I'm constantly looking for guests who can talk about not only the transition from high school to college, it's sort of morphed into transitions in general. So, you know, the, the transition out of professional sport into real life, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship, but really how the people who are on my show have either navigated those gates on their own, right, former athletes. Uh, or people who are experts in the field, who work in the space, who help athletes through the process. So it's really trying to explore that transition, those transitions from every different angle to give the listener who ideally is a family, an athlete, a parent, give them good information at no cost to help them understand what they might be facing and how they might be able to 
address those problems as they come along in their lives. Now, I assume it's, as they say, available in all formats that podcasts are available at. And uh, so it's on Spotify and it's on uh, Pandora and it's on Apple and all Apple that. and all Google and the, all those places. Yes. And do you have it on your website too? I do have it on my website. I have it anywhere you can Surprise. get it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it and you have to have that. And, and it's a great, it, it, you know, I love doing podcasts. I don't love doing the radio shows because I get to talk to some of the most amazing people and, and sports psychology is a newer thing, but it's becoming such a major part of all sports. If you look at a professional golfer and uh, you look him at, at the tee and he stands, he stands there and he's looking down the fairway and he's actually picturing the shot that he's going to make. And every moment of that shot from the backswing to the follow through to everything, is that much a much bigger deal today than it used to be? I think in terms of awareness, absolutely. Right. I, I think, and golf is a good example because golf is probably like I, I had sort of, I think I alluded to earlier, golf is sort of one of the forerunners in that too. There's all, in fact, there's a whole series of books by a, a gentleman called Dr. Bob Rotella, who wrote a series of golf related sports psychology books. He's a sports psychology, uh, doctor of sports psychology. And that's how I got interested even before I entered the field in terms of how you, golfers and people who play golf, not just professional golfers, but any golfer looks at the sport, the perspective, how they view things, the different techniques and strategies they use to make it a more, not only a, to play better, but to make it more enjoyable. So it's not a miserable experience. So golf is a little bit ahead of, ahead of the curve, but in terms of general public awareness, it is much greater now than at any time I would say ever before. I got to ask you this, just a little offbeat, but, and you're, but you're a sports guy and you've been around a lot of, of athletes and, and, and stuff. And when, when I was, uh, when I was playing way back, when, <laughs> way back when, um, at the awards bank with the coach said, I was a nose guard and the coach said, I don't know how you know where the ball is when you're practically beneath the ground because I was only like five foot eight and in in the middle of all these bodies and stuff. How do you know where the ball is going to be? It seems like I had a sixth sense or I could, I could, I knew what was happening while it was happening. Does that, is, is that something that's coachable, teachable, or is it kind of like a UFO? That's a really good question. I think a lot of it is, is, is through learning. And I think it's just subconscious. I don't think we realize how much we absorb like in that example, right? The number of snaps that you probably took in practice and in games over years, I think you just, you collect all that information and you store it in your memory banks, right? So like, I think we don't realize it consciously when games are happening, but like based on the flow of a play or what the center in front of you is doing or what the guard is doing or how the quarterback, where he's looking, like those are all cues that you're picking up on but you may not be picking up on them consciously, right? So you're sort of like being able to like see the play before it even happens. Do I think that people have innate abilities that are traits that are less, you know, um, changeable? Sure. I think some people do have inst instinctive traits that other people don't have, but I think a lot of it is the combination of nature and nurture, if you want to put it that way. Right. And I think we learn a lot more than we even realize subconsciously. 
And that's what allows us to know what's going on around us just by virtue of being in those situations so many times. I agree with you because he, what he also said was that every reverse or double reverse that another team ran against us that season, I made the tackle from the nose guard position. And it was because I could see the quarterback to looking and I could see somebody coming this way towards me. And so I knew that that, that play was going to happen because of experience and uh, I'd probably been burned on that play many times before that. Right. And, and that's exactly how the brain works. It, it, it develops patterns. It wants to identify patterns so that when something's happened, you could, I, you can pick up on it before it happens. Right. It's, it's our, it's almost, it's our defense mechanism, right. In the sense that we want to see things before they happen so we could be prepared for it. Right. So in that instance that you described, that was beneficial for you. Now, sometimes we see things like we start to see outcomes and results that are um, threatening. Like if I I see myself striking out right now that that's my, that's my mind protecting me from the threat of, Oh, I don't want to make an out, which is counterproductive, but our brain is trying to sort of prepare us for the worst. Right. So like those patterns and that sort of collection of data, like our brain is wired that way, right? The times that we get beat or burned, like you said, it's when things happen in a pattern that we can't recognize. I got to ask you about this. Have you ever heard of the concept? Oh, he's got the yips. It's I've had multiple athletes come to me with that self-described affliction. Yes. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, what the yips are is like, if you are a shortstop and you have made the throw from shortstop to first base for like ever, and then one day your brain convinces you that you can't make that throw and you start throwing it all over the place. And that's, that's what they call the yips. Is, is that, am I correct in that? Yeah. Is that in, in, es in essence, that's exactly what it is, right? Like something you've done automatically forever, your brain is starting to challenge the idea that you're able to execute that throw. Now, the one that I've seen is being most common in baseball is the throw from the catcher back to the pitcher. And, <laughs> and, and so, so there's a couple of different types of yips. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but one is sort of injury induced or mechanical, like something that's like biomechanical, meaning you've had some injury or some change or defect that's changing the pattern that you used to operate with, right? That's one form. The other form is really purely psycho-emotional where it's like, you can do this. There's been no physical change, but you're starting to convince yourself that you can't do it based on one or multiple results. And now you're having trouble executing it. So with the catchers, what I find or what I found, these are, this is a small sample. And, and the yips, let me say this. The yips is something that's extremely, at least from where I sit, is very difficult to understand. There's not a ton of research on it and how to uh, treat it or uh, you know address it. So it's not something that's very clear cut. But what I've seen is when athletes have time, extra time or when they're on their own time, like throwing the ball back to the pitcher, they don't have to do it in a short amount of time where it's just say, quote unquote, muscle memory. They, they have time to think about the throw. That's where the yips, 
if you want to call it that, come into play. Because now they're thinking like, oh, I have to throw this back to the pitcher or else I'm going to look stupid. Or I can't throw it over his head because the runner's going to advance. And so now they're starting to like get these thoughts in their head before they even throw the ball. It's like a swing thought in golf, if you've ever heard that, right? I approach the tee, I stand over the ball, and I think about don't shank it. Don't, don't slice it into the woods. And then I stand over the ball. What do I do? Slice it into the woods. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you want to call it that. So it does, it, it is a real thing. And what I've, what I've again found in, in a limited number of instances is the sooner you can address it, the easier it is to work through it. The longer it sets in and the pattern takes hold, the harder it is, is to undo it. So for anybody who might think that that's something that they're struggling with, or they're starting to see signs of it, they're having trouble doing something that's routine on a regular basis. I wouldn't wait because I think the longer you wait, the pattern sets in and now it becomes, now it becomes the standard. It doesn't become the exception. I had that very issue. I was a catcher for a long time. And if I had enough time to think about, Oh, here I go. Let's make the show throw right. Cause if I screw it up, it's I would inevitably screw it up. It's because I was setting myself up for failure uh, because they, and, and just like you said, just like you said. So it's, I was, I've always wanted to ask somebody about that. Cause I would have the yips from time to time and it was, and it's embarrassing when that happens to you. Well, exactly. And I think that's, that's exactly it in the sense that what I mean is, is that it's when the athlete starts to focus on the result before they actually focus on executing the process and they're thinking ahead to don't, I can't do this because I'm going to have some negative feeling or I'm going to look stupid or I'm going to like do some damage. The way I've worked through it in other cases with athletes is, Hey, don't jump past the process, right? Work through step-by-step like what you can control in the moment rather than thinking ahead. Like if you follow these cues in your throwing motion before you even think to that point and become automatic in the, in the process, mechanical processes, it kind of distracts the mind from the outcome, which is really what's the source of the yips. Like, Oh, don't do that versus like, Oh, I need to do all these little things before I get there. And by the time I get to releasing the ball, I'm not thinking about the result. I'm only thinking about, what I was doing in the present moment physically. It is amazing. Is it not the, how the, the mind can affects the, the physical performance of an athlete? You wouldn't think it would, but it does uh, to a great degree in, in, in any, in any pursuit really. Yeah. There's, there's a great book that I, I would urge anybody who's interested in the subject of sports psychology um, to read, it's called the inner game of tennis. Now, obviously the, 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 the title tells us that it's in a tennis context, but it really applies to any sport. And the basic premise of the book is that there's two selves. Self one is the one that executes everything automatically, physically based upon thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. Your body knows exactly how to serve the ball. Your body knows how exactly how to return the ball. Your body knows all that stuff. There's automaticity because there's so many repetitions. And then there's the, the second self, self two, that's basically your mind. It's your ego. It, it's, that's the roadblock in allowing our body to do these things that are automatic physically because of all the work and repetition. And the only reason we're not able to execute the movement the way we've been trained to is because our mind is getting in the way. 
it's telling us something that's contradictory to what we're capable of doing. And unless we can move that self too to the side and say, Hey, go sit in the stands and take a breather and just trust our mechanical, physical skills and ability. There's always going to be this battle of, even though I know I can do it and I've done it 10,000 times before, this is going to be the one time where I screw up and it's going to look really dumb. You know, I, <clears throat> I got to tell you, excuse me, that uh, this trans transcends sports and you can really have an impact in your entire life. If you understand that your mental aspect and the, and how you view things will affect your performance overall, whether you think that if you don't believe you can, guess what? You can't. Yeah. If you believe you can, you can accomplish some really remarkable things. And that's when you're talking with a, I don't know, uh, with an athlete that's, that's 16, 17, how do you help them understand the mental aspect of it so that they can um, get through the noise that's got to be going through their head? Uh, I, so I, I think, I think the, based on my own experience, right. And this is not, this isn't not scientific in nature, but this is just sort of the way I would describe it. And maybe there's a better technical term in, in, in the sports psychology literature that I could have pulled from, but to me it's perspective. And so what do, what do I mean by that is really painting a picture for the athlete to be able to compare and contrast like on a bigger picture in a bigger picture, because sometimes the athlete becomes so they get such tunnel vision. They become so focused on the sport and the result and what's going to happen and where they're going to go, they can't put things into perspective. Like, Hey man, like if I'm 17 and I'm playing varsity baseball, like I'm better than 95% of the kids in my high school. Cause most of them either a don't play or B they got cut. Right. Like I'm here for a reason. Like I'm good at this. Right. Like, and I could be the, the alternative could be, I'm not playing right. Or I could be injured. So there's an element of gratitude. Like, Hey, you're here for a reason. Like, enjoy it. Take advantage of it. Like there's that, right. There's bigger problems in the world. You know, it's like, or like, Hey, you've had all these successes over the last 10 years and you hit 400 that year. And you know, you hit five home runs and you hit, you know, drove in 50 runs. You did all these wonderful things, but the focus is always on the mistake. Why let's focus on the good things you've done as a reminder that you're capable of this. And I think young people particularly, but even adults like myself, I think we get so focused on the mistakes that we make and the shortcomings. And we, we don't give ourselves credit for the fact that we've done all these really good things that have gotten to this point that give us the opportunity to do something that we really love. And I think when it comes from somebody who's objective, like a third, per, third party, not a mom or a dad or whatever, and somebody who can really paint that picture for them in a sporting context it allows them to take a breath like, okay, maybe this isn't so bad, right? <laughs> this I'm making this out to be way worse than like it is. And, and not to say that you don't want to perform well and, and not to say that you shouldn't be competitive. And, and that's not to even say that you shouldn't be hard on yourself if you make a mistake, but make the mistake, learn from the mistake and then let it go because it's not going to serve you at all to dwell on it take the info that you need, move forward and try to get better. And I think that that's something that takes a little bit of work because it's not, it's not necessarily natural biologically, like in our bodies and our brains, but it's also social. 
coaches are so, and, and parents to a degree, but coaches are usually so negative. They're so focused on the mistake and correcting the mistake. And it just becomes a behavioral pattern because it's almost like Pavlov's dog, right? Like I make a mistake, coach yells at me. I make a mistake, coach pulls me out of the game. Well, then what are you going to say to yourself? I don't want to make a mistake. Now it becomes a cycle rather than reinforcing all the good stuff and backing off the mistakes because the kid knows he made a mistake and now he could figure it out for himself. He doesn't want to make it. He just doesn't want to be beat over the head with it. And that happens all way too often. Sure. All the time. You know, and, and kids, I think, should be given positive motivation rather than negative motivation and and stuff. And I've had I've had it both ways. I've had it where coach I've I've had it where a coach actually kicked me in the chest. Oof. Because he he didn't like he didn't I, I I was an offensive lineman wasn't very good and and he said put your and so anyway but in any event so you have good ones and you have bad ones but I wanted to ask you because why is it that when you have an exceptional ability to do something we tend to poo poo it and we tend to not appreciate the fact that we can do something to a high level. Of, of of understanding does that, does that make any sense to me to you at all i mean because it, it, it to me it seems like there are times when uh if you do something really well and you say well that's no big deal everybody should be able to do that because i do that really well but why don't we appreciate ourselves i guess is what i'm asking um that's a, i think that's a really hard question to answer I, I mean listen i think there is some level of humility in it right i think I think a lot of athletes, you know, they, they don't want to be the center of attention as much as we look at superstars and think that they only want to be the center of attention. I think most people don't want that, even though they like recognition, they don't want to be that, but there's a level of humility. Like they don't want to sort of toot, toot their own horn or, or promote themselves or whatever, right? Naturally. Um, you know, and, and I think also it's because of the way we're, we're wired biologically. I do in the sense that like, because our brains are much more, our brains are powered to recognize threat and, and, and protect us that we're thinking about the negative most times to avoid negative rather than sort of going toward positive. So I think there's a social element to it, but I also think there's a biological or a cognitive element to it as well. And I think those patterns can be changed, but there needs to be one in awareness of it. And then two, there needs to be, for lack of a better word, a programming to practice getting to a place where there is this perspective. We do have the tools to remind ourselves that we're really good at this and we do this really well 95% of the time. And the 5% of the time that we don't do it well, one, it's okay because we're human. Two, let's take from it and learn to get better. But three, let's not beat ourselves up. But that takes practice because it's not, it's not really our default setting. I mean, that's just the easiest way for me to say it. Boy, you know, I got to tell you, Mike, by the way, we're talking with uh, Michael Huber. And if you go to his website, michaelvhuber.com, you find out all about him, his uh, podcast, and everything he's got going. I have to really congratulate you because I've thrown the kitchen sink at you, including yips. And you and you answered everything beautifully. And I really appreciate this conversation. It will serve somebody well. I well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I love I think first and foremost, I love the work that I do. And I am 
truly curious about these things and I want to understand them. So hopefully the information that I know and shared is valuable, but I think I would say to be humble, to sort of lean on the theme, I'm always looking for a better answer. I'm always looking to learn more because we don't know everything, you know? And so hopefully the insight that I shared was valuable, um, but hopefully there's more to come. Oh, as you continue to evolve down the road yeah. and gain experiences of all kinds of different aspects of things, it, it will, it can't help but continue. So, mm -hmm. so, and I'm, I really would encourage if you've got, especially around here, we, we've got a lot of schools and a lot of, a lot of really talented kids. If you've got a talented kid, call Michael and especially a, a um, athlete. That is, I don't know when, when would you ideally, when would you start to like to work with somebody? That is a great question. And probably one of the hardest ones to answer, because I think when I started working, I had this, um, bias that working with really young kids was not necessary or the right thing to do. And what I found is, is that I've worked with some kids who are 10, 11, 12 years old and there's definitely an opportunity to start to plant some of the seeds of basic concepts of sports psychology that they can sort of wrap their head around in a very simple way that you can build on over time. I would say it gets harder to start in like the 14 age because I think 14 and 15 year olds are just hard to sort of communicate with and socio-emotionally it's, it's tricky. I think, you know, 16 is a really good age. They're much more mature. They're more focused on kind of what they want. They know what their motivation is and they want to get to the next level. A lot of them. And if the motivation is there, they're going to listen to anything you say because they want to get better. So it's tricky. I mean, every kid is different and early is good, but I think it also depends on the individual. What's their motivation to talk to somebody like me. If they're not motivated, it tends to not be as effective as it can be. It tends to be a waste of everybody's time, at least at that point. Doesn't mean you can't revisit, though. Boy, 14 is really a tough age for a boy <laughs> because when I was 14, I knew everything. And then suddenly when I was 15 or 16, I figured out that I knew nothing or 17 or 18 or yes. 25 or 40 and uh, and stuff. So it's, it's that growing up process is a tough age. But Absolutely. if you've got a guy that a kid that's a, a really good athlete, I would encourage you to talk to Mike. So, Mike, if somebody wants to call you or get in touch with you, how do they do that? I would say the best way to do that is to go to the website. Everything is there. You can contact me. All of my socials are there. All of my podcasts, all of my blogs, everything about me. It's kind of a one-stop shop for everything. So you can contact me. You can learn about me. Um, and then you can reach out to me, my phone number's there, et cetera. So, you know, don't hesitate to reach out by phone call, text, um, you know, whatever, whatever way is good for you. I'm, I'm here to listen. It's a really important step for a, uh, 17, 18 year old kid, because you keep hearing stories of athletes who were almost good enough, but they weren't quite good enough. And then they fall into troubles and they fall and, and keep your kid out of trouble. And uh, and really work with was with an, a coach who can help you help them live their life so that because it because you're right a kid's life does not end at even even who was it uh, Griffey his life was 38 years old his his baseball career was over it's he's still alive he's got to have another a whole other life to live yeah. 
right. A whole nother 38 plus years to go. What are you going to do? Exactly. Again, thank you, Michael, for being here. Will you come back? Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you for having me. This is great. Oh, you're more than welcome. And thank you for being here. And Michael V huber.com go to his website find out all about him i want to thank everybody for being here and for paying attention this has been a great show and by the way be kind to each other because each other's all we've got we'll see you at three o'clock on kixie